well, it has been allergy season, so um, sorry if I cough or something, but um, again, I just need to see y'all. If you have allergies, can you just like give me a shout real quick? <laughs> All right, just making sure I'm not alone in this. It's funny how if you have allergies, everybody's mad at you for having them when they don't have them. Anybody agree with that? It's like, I'm, I can't help that I'm sneezing. All right, I'm allergic to the world. All right, so if I cough, that's why I'm sorry. Um, but I'm, I'm expecting, excited to jump into this, this time. My name is Gage Henry. I'm the college and community pastor here. And I'm in a new season in my life, kind of. I have, I have a one-and-a-half-year-old. It's felt like a new season for one-and-a-half years now. But he's uh, in this season. You, you guys know if you're a parent, you know the season, the hide-and-seek stage, where you start counting, and then he finds you. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, he literally cannot wait three seconds before he's like, here, here I am. And it made me think about some, some times in my life. The last time I actually played uh, hide-and-seek, I know it's really interesting, was at a co-ed middle school party. Crazy. And uh, I remember I knew the spot. It was my friend's house. Went up to the attic, found the spot. So excited. Put some Christmas lights kind of next to me to make sure in case they came. And then the moment we all know about, where you're like sitting there, and I, my wife told me I'm a, I'm a loud breather, so I guess I knew this then. I remember holding my breath, and I remember just like giddy excited. You know what I'm talking about? You're about to get found or not. And they come into the room. You know the feeling, and you hear them shuffling around, and then you hear the attic part open, and I was like, as still as I could be, holding my breath, and I hear him say, he's not in here, and I'm like, you're right, I'm not in there, let's go, <laughs> fired up, excited, feeling giddy, and then a few minutes go by, and then like five minutes go by, and then seven minutes go by, and you're like, huh, <laughs> this isn't as fun as I thought it'd be up here alone, so I remember I like peered out, and I like knocked on the door, like trying to like get people to like, hey, I'm still here, and as I opened the door, I heard singing. I'm like, hold up. So I like kind of crawl out and I go outside the room and I walk over to like the catwalk that overlooks the living room and everyone is singing happy birthday. <laughs> and so I like slink down the stairs slowly and as I'm singing, you know, you ever have like a best friend where you can have a whole argument with just your eyes? Spouses, you know what I'm talking about? You can say like five sentences and just I look, I look at my best friend, he looks at me, he's like, mm, sorry, and <laughs> couldn't stop it. And so they're singing. And then they get done singing, and then a guy looks at me, and he says, huh, there you are, Gage. We just got bored of looking for you. We knew you'd eventually come out. <laughs> Everyone laughs. Ha, 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 it's the funniest joke ever. Everyone's laughing. I'm smiling. And all I felt was shame. It was the first time I remember in a peer group feeling shame, like I'm the wrong one. And I just want to say to start off today that some of you have been playing hide-and-seek in your faith. And it feels like if you come out, you maybe say something, maybe you've done this, you've been vulnerable in front of a church before, or a small group before, and then all of a sudden you kind of get burned for it. What's interesting is when you look to the scriptures, we're about to look at the law first, I call it, meaning the first time God says something, it matters. And we're about to see the first question that God ever asks. We'll put it on the screen. We're not going to turn there yet in our Bibles. We're going to get to something else in just a second. It says this in Genesis 3.8. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the, the garden in the cool of the day, they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said, where are you? First question, God asked humanity, where are you? And the word in Hebrew, just so you know, it's not like there's two words for where in Hebrew. One is like location, like where are you? Where are you located? The other one is you're supposed to be here, but you're not. So I want you to think about, have you ever sat across from somebody who's physically there, but not there? Can I get an amen from some wives in the room? <laughs> that moment, God is saying here, where are you? Why? Because sin has separated him now. 
And when there's an infinite personal God who created mankind in his image, and he wants a personal relationship with us to put the world back together, what happens? Verse 10, he answered, I heard you in the garden. This is Adam talking, but I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, who told you that you were naked? That's a confusing statement, isn't it? God made them naked, but now all of a sudden they're ashamed of the way God created them to be. Why? They listen to a voice, Satan's voice. What do he say? Go hide. That's why God's first question to all of us, where are you? So I want you to think about that right now as I'm talking, as I'm talking about Jesus and God in a second. Where are you today? Here's the, the good news. Is that we're about to look to some stories in this series of some characters who responded to God with full obedience. And here's what they said. Here I am. So that's the series we're going into. It's every single story, every single moment where there's a character in the Bible who responded to God, calling him by saying, here I am. And what's amazing is that you'll notice that in the story of the scriptures, every single time that somebody responds with an obedient and available yes to that question and says, here I am, God unleashes a new thing. God does something significant. And I love this phrase because in Hebrew, it's one word, well, kind of, it's called Hanani. Hanani. Go ahead and tell your neighbor, Hanani. It's fun to say. Here's what it means. It means everything I am, everything I have, everything I do. I'm available to you. I'm fully present. I'm fully ready. Here I am. And so today, we're actually going to look at the first encounter that God has with a person where the responder says, here I am. And it's Father Abraham. So if you need a title for this sermon, it's Where Faith Makes Sense. Where Faith Makes Sense. We're going to look at the life of Abraham in a story that you've probably heard a million times. But what I think is so unbelievably incredible about the story of Abraham we're about to read is that Abraham is about to unlock something in us what do you do when God calls you to do something that seems contradictory to his character? Like, what do you do when it feels like, I'm getting called to this, but it doesn't make sense, and wisdom says I need to do this, but I don't really know. And so if you've ever wondered about what to do with the calling that God has on your life, if you've wondered about the will of God for your life, that's what this series is going to kind of lean into in the coming weeks. But I want to make sure that we set this up right, because Abraham responds by saying, here I am. So if you have your Bible, hold it up. We're going to get into the story of Abraham. Hold it up. So I was debating what to do in the Bible drill because I get to um, in this moment. And so how about let's do this. If you cry in movies, keep your Bible up. Wow, the emotional types. All right. All right. If you are a guy in the room, keep your Bible up. Dwindling. Let's go. Look around. All right. If you're single in the room and you're a guy, keep them up. Oh, I'm trying to help you guys out. All right, everybody turn with me to Genesis, Genesis 22. You're welcome on the front row. So I'm excited to read from this Bible because we're going ESV today, people. Woo, okay, spicy. This is also an elder's Bible, so you know it's good. All right, reading from it. Actually, before I set this up, I want to make sure we know the context kind of of Abraham. So think about this. As you're turning there, it's, it's the first book of the Bible. We got this. Um, but as you're turning there, 
Um, just some things about Abram. It started off Abram, chapter 12, we find out that he obeyed God faithfully when he was called. Uh, we know that there's going to be a nation of Israel. He's going to be the father of that nation. Uh, Abraham, or Genesis 15, 6 talks about how Abram believed the Lord and it was credited to him as righteousness. Huge verse. We talk about the, the name Abram literally means exalted father. Well, guess what? He has no children. And he's almost 90 years old. He's in his 80s. Still has no children. His whole life has been called that. Abram, exalted father. But there's a name change. There's a, a thing that happens. God makes a covenant with him. Says you're going to be the father of nations, of the multitudes. And it's this epic moment. And then they give him the, the covenant of circumcision in chapter 17. And then there's a name change, like I said, that leads to the promise that he will have a son. The problem is he takes it into his own hands, sleeps with the servant of his wife, gets her pregnant, and has Ishmael. So Ishmael is his son, but not really the son of the promise. So think about this. The whole time they've been told they will have a son, him and his wife, and they laughed. There's no way. We're in our 90s. There's no way we'd have a son. But then he says, nope, you will have a son. His name will be Isaac. Well, they named him Isaac because he literally means laughter. The name Isaac means laughter. It's this epic moment, this epic story. Genesis 19, we got the Sodom and Gomorrah story. And picture the scene. Genesis 21, what happens? Isaac is born. This is, just so you know, the firstborn son is the hope of the entire family. This is what matters the most. And then he sends Ishmael away, but he's seeing the moment that he has dreamed of for a lifetime. He's been waiting 90 years to have a son. And here he is. And now we're going to read Genesis chapter 22, verse 1. If you're there, say I'm there. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. All right. After all these things, after, by the way, he called Abram at the time. He was 75 years old. So don't just think that calling is meant for college students. It can be meant for 40-year-olds, 50-year-olds, 60-year-olds. He calls him at 75. He obeys God. He goes. He makes some mistakes. He fails. He rescues Lot. He does all these things. And after all these things, now he's like, wow, the mercy of God is on my life. I have a son. I have Isaac. I'm so excited. What does he say? Now take that son. Take that son. And take him to a mountain where you're going to offer him up for dead. But before he says that, it says what? He tested Abraham. What does he say? First time, here I am. God, the God I've been serving, the God I've been obeying, here I am. Whatever you want, whatever you want to take me and tell me to do, it says take your son. Why is it his only son? Because he already had Ishmael, right? Because the birthright system, it was always through the line of the promise. Isaac was the line of the promise. It means that it was his only son. Whom he loves, which by the way, this is the first time in the whole Bible the word love is mentioned. And it's related to a father who's supposed to sacrifice his son. This is the moment. It says what? Whom you love. And then it says what? To offer him as what? A burnt offering. A burnt offering is what you would give in worship to a debt that you owe. In essence, Abraham is hearing him say this and he knows it's true. I owe you for my sins. I owe you for the sins of my family. So I do need to go do this. Verse 3, so Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose. 
and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. So what's interesting is if you would go to Israel and you look at a map, the journey is actually about a half day's walk. But it takes him three days. Scholars believe because they think that he went around the whole Dead Sea wrestling with God, wondering if this is what he was supposed to do. Three days. And he gets to the mountain and he sees the mountain, the place where he is supposed to sacrifice his son. And I want us to kind of get in the right headspace for this because we read into the Bible and we just kind of see the facts and we don't really get into the kind of the feelings of what's going on. And so I want us to kind of slow down and think about this. So where are my people at who cry in movies? Y'all, y'all, okay, here we go. Um, so the first time I ever cried in a movie, it was the, the most sad movie I've ever seen in my life. It's called Marley and Me. <laughs> and um, I don't know if I'm allowed to say this because I'm a pastor on staff, but I, I had a dog growing up, crazy. Um, Miles is not a huge dog fan, but... I had a dog growing up. His name was Sam. Sam was an okay dog. He smelled terrible. He peed in the house. He did things that dogs do, right? The whole time, I'd be like, oh, Sam, and he'd be like, oh, yep, you again. And he'd look at me with the same eyes, like, yep, you again. You know, like, that's like the dog relationship you have with a childhood dog growing up, right? And there was, like, all the bad things that happened, but he was just there. Like, he's there for all the birthdays. He's there for all the celebrations. He's there for all the anniversaries. He's just my dog. And then, when I was in high school, I have this vivid memory. See, he loved my mom. I remember coming home from school every single day, and I would kind of go in there. I knew that part of my responsibilities was walking the dog, and I would walk in to my mom's bedroom because she was going through chemo treatments. And when she was going through chemo treatments, she slept throughout the day. I'd always go in there, and he would always be at the foot of the bed. And I'd say, Sam, you want to go for a walk? I knew he had to pee. knew he hadn't gone out. And he'd almost look at me like, I need to, but no. <laughs> and he would stay there at the foot of the bed. And after that, he got sick himself. When I was in high school, he started getting sicker and sicker and sicker, and the vet finally told us, like, hey, it's either you spend a ton of money for maybe an extra week, maybe an extra month, or you have to put him down. And I remember my family coming to me and to, our, to my sister and telling us, like, hey, we're going to have to put Sam down. It took like three or four days of us wrestling with the fact that we would lose this dog, the one who'd been there from the very beginning, the one who I literally had all my memories with him just there. This is the moment where all of a sudden I'm wrestling with this death. So we put him down. And then a week later, I'm going with my friends to see an Owen Wilson movie <laughs> that I think is going to be hilarious. Relax. Like, I'm excited for Owen Wilson. <laughs> and then I get to the scene, the scene where the dog's on the table. And he's saying goodbye. I think I got a picture of it if you want to throw it up. No, no, why would you do that? <laughs> and I am bawling my eyes out as he says, you were a great dog, Marley. You were a great dog, Marley. You were a great dog, Marley. Y'all, this is a dog. This is an animal. This story we just read is about his son. So now when I read this story, I don't think about my dog, Sam. I think about my son, Griffin. And if you have a son, you know exactly what that's like. If you have a daughter, you have a spouse, you have a loved one, you have a friend, I want you to picture yourself going up that mountain knowing I'm about to have to obey God in the hardest way possible. I'm about to have to give up my only son, the line that's been promised through me. I'm going to have to do this. 
And this is what's happening in the story. We flip over it like, yeah, it's, it makes sense. He should sacrifice his only son. No, it doesn't. So let's keep reading the story. Verse 5. Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went, both of them together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father, knowing that everything's happening, seeing what's going down, seeing the knife, seeing all of it. And Abraham looks down and says, here I am, my son. I'm fully with you. You know, this past week, um, my son Griffin has been doing this thing where he shouts mama. He loves to shout mama throughout the house. But he started doing this thing where he loves to whisper dada. He goes, dada. <laughs> and it's this moment, though, I think he loves it so much because when he does it, I kind of lean in with him and I get close to him and I, like, pick him up. And he goes, dada, and I hold him. I want you to think of that picture right here. This is Isaac looking up at his trusted father. The one who's the protector. The one, by the way, he's about 13 probably now. The one who his whole life has said, you're the promised son. You're the promised child. And now Isaac's looking at him and saying, Abba, my father, what's happening? And he looks down at him probably with tears in his eyes and says, here I am, my son. I'm with you in this. I'm here. I'm fully present. I'm fully aware. I'm here. And he said, behold, this is Isaac talking, the fire in the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went both of them together. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. And I wish we could know what Isaac was thinking. I really do. I wish we had more insight into what was happening. But the fact that he had to bind his son was evidence of the fact that he was forsaking his son. Some translations even say that, that he was forsaking his son by making sure he couldn't get away. He binds him to the altar. Verse 10, then Abraham reached out his hand and he took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. The third time. Think about this. Heart beating, out of breath, full anguish, fully ready to plunge that knife into his son. Abraham, Abraham, stop. And he said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to hurt him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and he looked. And behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went, he took the ram, and he offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide, or Jehovah Jireh. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. So obviously, um, that question that God asks us, the where are you, is actually about attachment, meaning that we are detached from God and sin. 
but now he wants to reattach us to himself. And so what's happening here in this, this moment is he's looking at Abraham. He's saying, is your life more attached to Isaac or me? Do you love me, God the Father, or Isaac more? Which one? And so for us, I think a lot of times we think of idolatry. And in our culture, it's kind of confusing to talk about idolatry because we think about like carved images on heads or like something like weird. But idolatry is just anything you love more than God. And so what's crazy, though, is that sometimes God will give you a good thing and you will make it God. This is an opportunity where he's saying, look, this is a good thing. This is Isaac, a blessing. And he's saying, I want you to offer it up because you might love it more than me. So what if you got gut level honest with me? What is the thing that would shatter you to pieces, shatter your life right now if you were asked to give it up? It could be a son. It could be a daughter. It could be family. It could also be your career, your major, having a future spouse, recognition, admonishment, achievement. What is it? If you never get it, you never have it, or you have to give it up in this life, it would shatter you. That's probably what you're most likely to attach yourself to besides God. So think about that thing. And I think for me, it's really easy if I just ended there and we just did a message about idolatry and all that, and I thought about it. But what's amazing is sometimes you get a gift, um, and the gift that I got was the fact that sometimes the Bible explains the Bible. And so I'm actually going to look at Hebrews, which is a New Testament, in the New Testament, and we're going to talk about how Hebrews actually clarifies all that we just read. And all my points are straight out of Hebrews. So I'm really excited. We're going to go to Hebrews 11. If you want to turn over there, you can. I'm going to put it up on the screen. And we're going to end this living full of faith, saying, here I am. So you got to know that this is the God of covenant. I mean, he made a covenant with Abraham. And now we're going to see that fulfillment in Jesus in the new covenant. So now Hebrews is writing back, explaining a lot of the faith and the heroes of the faith, especially in this chapter. So as you're turning there, I'm going to put it on the screen. What is faith? Faith shows the reality of what we hope for. It is the evidence of things we cannot see. This is how he starts the chapter. I want you to pay attention to this. I've heard this conclusion a lot from this, this section of verses, especially talking about Isaac. I've heard that Abraham had blind faith. I've heard that people say that. They're like, hey. He was just blind faith. He just was sold out for God, would do it no matter what. I think that this verse that we just read is potentially the most misunderstood and misapplied verse in the entire Bible. And I'll, I'll explain why because it's a bold statement. I think that we have accidentally equated faith with a lack of sight. And I think that faith is not just, but we kind of do this, we just think it's believing when it doesn't make sense. And I think that evidence to that is, think about your life. When you are confronted with a situation or a trial that you do not understand, or you're confronted with a question about God that you don't know the answer to, what do you do as a Christian? You reach for the word faith as like a band-aid to explain it. You say, oh, you just gotta, gotta have faith. Gotta have faith. And that is a blind faith. That's saying like, no, 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 look. It's not about that. It's about something bigger. It's about a reality. So what I think so many of us do is we put blinders on. We stick our heads in the sand instead of actually pressing the deeper question of why and what's going on. And so what I think has happened is if you look in our culture, let's be honest, we're, we're in the South. 
Auburn, Birmingham, wherever you're watching this, I mean, we're in the South. How else would you explain a culture where almost everybody you come into contact with would say, yeah, I believe in God, yet still says that obedience to that God is optional? Why else do we live in a space where all of a sudden blind faith is what is, um, I would say, put on a pedestal above everything else in living an actual sacrificial life for Jesus? And this is what's crazy. I work with college students. You know what I've noticed about most of the college students who've walked away from their faith? It's because of a God that does not exist, that did not meet their expectations. It's because they had these eggs in a basket of, no, I'm, this is who God is. I'm going to just have faith that I'm actually going to get the job that I want. I'm going to have faith that cancer will go away. What happens? Cancer doesn't go away. The person dies. Hard things happen. Suicide. And what happens is they walk away from their faith because of it. Because they thought something was promised that wasn't. And what you'll see, and I would say, one, one last thing, i got to say it. I would say this is why so many people don't want to be Christians. You think about it. This is what we're kind of inadvertently communicating to the world. If you're not a Christian in this room, you're like, finally, someone's saying it. This is why people don't want to be a Christian. It's because Christianity is just a religion where we blindly believe something to be true without any real evidence in our lifestyle. Why do we keep doing this? It's because we keep attaching this word blind faith. But what you'll see is that we have just misapplied the wrong thing. As my pastor friend likes to say, we put the emphasis on the wrong syllable, if you will. Let's look back at it, Hebrews 11.1. 1. This is what Hebrews 11.1 1 is all about. Faith shows the reality of what we hope for. It is the evidence of things we cannot see. This is not blind faith. This is bold faith. Because faith is a reality that we hope for. Because if it's real, it's true. And if it's true, it's trustworthy. So here's what you need to know. We don't believe that our faith is strong because we can't see it. We believe our faith is strong because it actually happened. It's true. Heaven is real. Jesus really did come. He really did die. He really did show us the way to live. He really did rise from the dead three days later. He really did send his Holy Spirit to ignite the church that we're still celebrating in today. Amen. He did all of that. It's real. How do I know that? Heaven is real because it's a reality. It's an eternal reality. So faith is not blind belief or wishful thinking. It's real. 2 Corinthians 5, 7, by the way, which says that we walk by faith, not by sight. You know what that's about? Your heavenly body. It's about the fact that you will live in heaven forever. It's about the fact that heaven is real. And that's a way better way to live than what we see in our earth. So here's what I would say. I'm going to put it on the screen. Your faith is not rooted in earthly outcomes. Your faith is rooted in heavenly realities. And I'm taking this directly out of what I just saw, and I'm going to read another verse. But Abraham, I know, God, that you are good. I know it doesn't make sense, but I will choose the way of obedience to you. Not knowing how this is all going to play out in the earth, not knowing what's going to happen, probably actually killing my son. But I know I'm in a heavenly reality. I need to live for that because that's more real. Verse 13 of Hebrews, all these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance, admitting that they were foreigners and strangers on earth. Crazy. They did not receive the things promised, but they knew that they were citizens of heaven, just like you and me. So let's go back to Abraham. Verse 8. By faith, Abraham, when he was called, obeyed by going out to a place where he was to receive 
for an inheritance, and he left, not knowing where he was going. Huge. Talk about calling of God in your life. Talk about how he could be in a position to make faith make sense. This is a moment where you need to see right here. When he was called, obey. In Greek, this is a present participle. So a better translation would be, Abraham, while being called, was obeying. Abraham, while being called, was obeying. See, I think a lot of us have timetables that we put on God. I think a lot of us right now, if you were really honest with me, if God told you right now to do something, your initial response would be, was that God? Well, let me talk to three people to make sure that that was him. Well, actually, let me just talk to everyone I've ever met in my life to make sure that was him. And let me, let me pray about it. And let me, okay, if the baptism story says like three more times that this is the exact story that I'm going through, then yeah, I'll be obedient and go get baptized. And we start doing these things where all of a sudden we make like these, these uh, ultimatums with God about being obedient to him. But in actuality, what that does is that puts us on an equal playing field with God. We like to be God because we want to know everything that's going on. What's happening, though, is that we have to live our life with an eternal perspective, not a temporal one. So let's change that response to here I am. Let's change the response to, God, you have all of me. Take me where you want. I'm yours. Because Abraham walked by faith, not by feelings. Think about this. There was no time involved. There's no time involved before he said yes. What that means is a lot of us in this room, it's been so hard for your feelings to catch up with what you know is true. The reality is, it starts with obedience. It starts with saying yes to God when he calls you. So you can write this down. Real faith is not believing in spite of your circumstances. Real faith is obeying in spite of the consequences. Think about this in your life. A lot of us, what do we do? We just have enough faith to hold on through the end of the trial or through the end of the circumstance. Honestly, if we're real honest with each other, most of the time we're hanging on. We're actually mad, about, mad at God the whole time. We don't really want to stay a Christian, but we just have to. And the reality is, is there's something going on deeper. There's something that God is calling you to in the trial. There's something that he wants to walk with you through. And so it makes our faith active and not just passive. So when I was, in, I was in Texas, I met a doctor who took some seminary classes with me. He was a uh, pancreatic oncologist or pancreatic cancer doctor. It's the best way to put it. And he said, he told me, he said, Gage, 95% of my patients die. I literally meet people. I start loving them. I start caring for them. And then they go to be with Jesus or not. And I was like, how in the world do you have that job? If you thought your job was tough, imagine that job. How do you have that job? He said, well, there's three types of people that I encounter. He said, number one, there's the kind of people who don't have faith, who don't know Jesus. And he said, they fight all the way up until their very last breath. He said, literally, they'll spend every dime in their bank account just to get a little bit more comfort before they die. That's the first group. He says, horrible to watch. It's, it's terrible. Number two, he said, there's people that know the Lord, but it seems like they're kind of resolved to die. Like they're kind of ready. And I was like, okay, what's the third group of people? He said, oh, the third group, they're trying to take the whole hospital with them to heaven. He said, they're telling everybody, nurses, anybody, technicians, people cleaning the room, hey, I'm going to be with Jesus soon, are you? Hey, you know about Jesus. Hey, have you know that there's actually a hope that's real, that we can live forever? Come on, you want to come to this party? It's going to be awesome. Come on. Like he said, literally, that's how I still do what I do. It's because of those patients that believe that this is not the life. This is not it. There's a heaven that is actually waiting on us and new bodies that we get to inherit. 
come on, right? So I was like, okay, maybe I could be a pancreatic cancer doctor, you know, <laughs> just not smart enough. Um, but anyways, back to the point. I'm real excited to land this message with you in Genesis 22.5 because there's something that stood out to me that I believe will speak right to you in your circumstance that doesn't make sense right now. Genesis 22.5 says, Then Abraham said to his son, or said to his young men, remember he's traveling with a group, then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. If you have the NIV translation, I love it because it says, we are going to the mountain to worship, but we will be back here again. You might be like, that doesn't make any sense. It makes perfect sense. Because if you think about it, I feel like the point of the test was, does he love God more than he loves Isaac? But the second part of that test is, does he believe God would be faithful to raise his son from the dead? If he kills him, is he faithful to raise his son from the dead? So it seems like a massive contradiction, right? But for some reason, Abraham has the faith to not disobey instructions, but also not doubt God's promises. And he calls out the truth of the promise that was spoken to him. We will come again to you. I know the God that I'm serving can bring dead things to life because he brought a dead womb to life to have Isaac in the first place. He can do the same. I owe him a debt, so I have to go pay it. But we will be back. We'll be back over here. And it's not just my opinion saying that. Hebrews 11 says it directly. Check it out. By faith, Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He who had embraced the promises was about to sacrifice his one and only son, even though God had said to him, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. Abraham reasoned that God could even raise the dead. So in a manner of speaking, he did receive Isaac back from the dead. So if you think about it, if your faith is obeying in spite of the consequences, not just believing in spite of the circumstances, what does that mean for you? It means this. When your circumstances contradict God's character, call out God's truth. When your circumstances contradict God's character, when what you're going through does not make sense, if you know that God is all these things, then call out what's actually true. And so here's what's not true about God. What's not true is that he promised no suffering. I mean, he literally, in this world, you will have suffering. So you can't expect God to never have suffering, to get the dream job you always wanted, to maybe even get married before you're 30, to do all the things that you think he should, he owes you. Maybe it's money. Maybe it's your dream job. Maybe it's your health. God does not promise any of those things. So what does God promise? He promises that he's good. He promises that he'll never tempt you and he'll always give you a way out of temptation. He promises that Satan has been crushed under his foot. He promises that he'll give you peace unlike anything the world can offer. He promises you to give you joy in the midst of a trial or a circumstance. He promises that he himself is love. To take the words of Paul, and I am convinced that nothing can ever separate us from God's love. Neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither our fears for today nor our worries about tomorrow. Not even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love. 
no power in the sky above or in the earth below. Indeed, nothing in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus our Lord. Come on, Paul. What does that mean? Christ has been revealed to you and to me because this story is not just about Abraham and Isaac. This story is about God the Father and Jesus. It says that Jesus was actually slain before the foundations of the world in Revelation. It means that from the very beginning, God has always planned this redemptive story where you're a part of it if you say yes to Jesus. But I just want to read out some of the explicit, direct connections of Isaac to Jesus. Isaac, miracle birth from a dead womb. Jesus, miracle birth from a virgin Mary. Isaac, the promised child. Jesus, the promised Savior. Isaac, the one and only son. Jesus, the one and only son of God the Father. Mount Moriah, where he was sacrificed. Guess what? It's the same mountain range of Mount Calvary and Golgotha where Jesus was sacrificed. Isaac had to carry the wood for the altar. Jesus had to carry the cross for his crucifixion. He was loved. Isaac was loved. The first mention of love in the entire Bible, the first expression of love in the entire Bible is about the way that Abraham looks at Isaac and the last demonstration of love that we ever need is the love that God had for his son, but sin him anyways. He was bound, so he was forsaken. Jesus said, Aloy, Aloy, Shabbat to me. Why have you forsaken me? Three days on a journey. In Abraham's mind, Isaac was dead. Three days in the tomb, everyone thought Jesus was dead. There's one difference. One difference. See, Isaac, there was a substitute. Remember what he said? He said, there's going to be a lamb offering when we get up there. We trust that God will provide. We trust that he'll be there. We trust that he's going to come through. And Isaac, as he's laying there on that table, and as the knife came down, here's what happened. All of heaven was marveling at the way Abraham loved God so much to give his only son as a sacrifice for his family's sin. And in the same way, God looked down at the moment where Jesus was crucified. This is his one and only son. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. He knew, Isaac knew, that God could actually raise his own child from the dead. And now, some of us in this room, your offering is this. Here I am. Because what's true and where this story connects to us, John 3.16, by the way, has connection to Genesis 22. You heard that verse? You know Nicodemus is actually having this conversation. He's the ruler of the Jews. Guess what their faith is based on? Abraham, the story of Abraham and Isaac. And Jesus is looking at Nicodemus across the eyes and he's saying, I am the light, come to the light. For God so loved the world that he gave me that none shall perish. And Nicodemus is looking at him and he says, Nicodemus, you have a choice to choose the way of light choose the way of darkness. You will be condemned or you will be with me in heaven forever. And the same choice is for you today. If you're not a Christian in this room, here's what you need to know. We're not Abraham in the story. We're Isaac. And the truth of the matter is you're laying on that altar. The only place where faith makes sense is on the altar. And as your life is there, guess what? The wrath of God, the love, that he showed through his son Jesus, the wrath, the holiness, the payment that was due is coming down on you unless 
you commit your life to Jesus, it says he will wash all your sins white as snow. And it's almost like Jesus gets to look at you and pull you off that table and get out of himself because he did it already. And so now you have a choice. If you have never given your life to Jesus, if you've never said, here I am, all of me, that's a simple thing, it's a simple prayer. Jesus, I give you my life. But if you, in this room right now, say, I am a Christian, I wanna live my life for Jesus, I wanna do everything in my power to make sure that his name is magnified in my life, just take the words of Romans 12:1. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. That is your true and proper worship. We're called to now lay our life down on the altar as well in full service and full surrender. God is that loving. He looked down on his son. He wasn't with full of wrath and anger and punishment and mad and just, oh, this God having to punish Jesus. You know what he's looking at? You and me with love. This is how much I love you. This is how much I've been pursuing you. This is how much I want to give you life. All you have to do is believe in me. You can step into the real life that's life and live forever in heaven. Just say yes. So we're going to remember that sacrifice. We're actually going to take communion here right now. If you're still like, I don't want to do that, I'm, I'm not a believer, that's okay. If you want to give your life to Jesus, this is the moment. Just say, Jesus, I give you my life. Here I am. Everybody else. This is a moment where I encourage you, if you're married, to pray over your family. This is the time we're just going to enjoy the fact that our lives are not on that altar anymore. That Jesus has taken it all himself. His body broken for you and his blood poured out for you. So take some time with your family and then we'll get started again in worship.